Welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. I am Pastor Michael Zarling, and I'm here with my co-host, Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer. Hello, everyone. Our theme for this Sunday's scripture readings is a church that takes up the crosses. And we begin to look at that church that takes up the crosses already with the gospel lesson. Uh, Matthew 16 Matthew writes, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law, and be killed, and on the third day be raised again. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, May you receive mercy, Lord. This will never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a snare to me because you are not thinking the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In fact, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. After all, what will it benefit a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for his soul? So, Nathan, you and I were talking about this this afternoon as I was working on my sermon. I was asking you for help on it. Is It says, from that time, what's that time that Matthew's referring to? So both Matthew, Mark, and Luke all place this event right after um, the section we covered in the lectionary last week, which was Peter's confession. So it seems that there was not an elapse in time, that it seems that Jesus is still up to the north of the Sea of Galilee by Caesarea Philippi. And I think it's interesting to see these two accounts um, next to each other the way they are, that we have on the one hand Peter's amazing confession that Jesus is the Christ, and then you have Peter here being called Satan. That That's really kind of contrasting um, that character of Peter that we see in Scripture. Right. And here Jesus gets right into it. Uh, Matthew does not record for us Jesus' specific words, but he says, Jesus began to show his disciples he had to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law, and be killed, and on the third day be raised again. Now, Jesus had talked about his suffering before, but uh, the disciples didn't understand. And personally, I don't really blame them because these were some of the veiled references Jesus had. So this is from Matthew 9, 15. Jesus said to the disciples, Can the attendants of the bridegroom mourn while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. And then a few chapters later in Matthew 12, verse 39, he says, An evil and adulterous generation wishes for a sign, but no sign will be spelled out and given except the sign of Jonah the prophet. So if you were a disciple, Nathan, would you get what Jesus is, is getting at there? No, I think I would fall in the same category um, where Jesus often said to his disciples, how can you be so foolish? And I mean, my sinful nature reads those passages and be like, well, maybe it's because Jesus wasn't explaining himself really well. But he would often talk in cryptic ways, and this is another instance where we wish um, we had more. You know, as John says, all the sayings of Jesus could fill a multitude of books, and 
we have what we have in the scriptures, and it would just be interesting to see how much more he elaborated in private with his disciples on some of these things. Right. I had a, an adult confirmation class on Monday night at someone's home, and we were on, on the topic of baptism. And I said, yeah, I've heard recently people saying, well, it would be nice if the Holy Spirit would have had someone say very clearly, we should baptize infants. And I think that was probably on the internet somewhere, uh, maybe in one of those discussions that you and I stay away from. But as we were going through the Bible verses, yeah, there isn't a specific Bible verse that says baptize babies. But when you take all of the verses together, you know, baptizing all nations, whole families are baptized, uh, that Jesus says this is the children can believe, even babies can believe. Uh, and when he, when Peter says on Pentecost, this meaning baptism, this is for you and your children and for all who are far off. I said, when you take those all together, especially that last one, this is for your children, it's pretty clear that baptism's for children. But I think the Holy Spirit and here Jesus want us to work a little bit and have a little bit of effort. And I think that's true of a lot of Jesus's teaching is, you know, these are hard things. So I think it's, yeah, it's Peter. Peter who says, you know, about Paul. Paul says a lot of things that are difficult to understand. Um, there's a lot of portion of scripture that's not easy. Salvation, saving faith is easy. I mean, the message is clear and simple. Uh, but even that I, I mentioned in my sermon last week, like, we're saved by grace alone. We struggle with that. Like, we all instinctively think there's no such thing as a free lunch. So while the message is clear and simple, the accepting and the understanding of that message is often difficult. And you and I are just lowly pastors. So think of the prophet Jeremiah in the first lesson. We're not really going to talk about it on the podcast, but when you hear it in your church on Sunday, you notice the prophet doesn't get it. And the Lord in the second half of the text calls his prophet to repentance for not getting it. So what's going on in the gospel lesson then is Jesus has just said that he's going to have to suffer and die. And then Peter leads him away. That's the way I take it. Just kind of leads him a few steps away from the rest of the disciples. And then he tells the Son of God what the agenda for the Christ should be. So Peter does not understand the suffering servant prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, and so he is a scandalon, you know, a trap, a snare. That's what scandalon is in the Greek there. And if Jesus had stepped into that trap, then the whole mission of redeeming the world would have been aborted. I think what's interesting, too, is when I, when I read this account, I don't think Peter was maliciously trying to sidetrack the plan of salvation. I read this and see a friend looking at his friend and saying, I don't want you to die. But you think about how often we see even among other people, you can go into a situation with the best of intentions and have disastrous results. And I think that's kind of what we see with, with Peter here, that he was acting out of misapplied love. He didn't want his good friend Jesus, his teacher, to suffer and die, but completely missing the larger picture. Yeah, and that's what you're talking about, like a friend. You know, we might be talking to a friend who's struggling in their marriage, and they say, well, 
I'm not happy. I don't feel loved by my spouse. And then we might be tempted to say something effective. Well, God wants you to be happy. You know, maybe you need to have a relationship where you're feeling loved. And that's that's a temptation that we are le- uh, laying as a snare, as a trap to our friends. God nowhere says that you get to be happy or loved in your marriage. That sounds scandalous on its own, but he doesn't. But we get, uh, we can be like Peter and try and be loving and then lay a trap for our family and friends just like Peter was for Jesus. Well, this section too reminds me of just some of you know, the difficult things we struggle with, the doctrines of Christology, of how Jesus is both true God and true man. So as true God was perfectly in accord with God's will and was going to see this his suffering and crucifixion through, but to also have human flesh and the weaknesses. We hear that in the high priestly prayer where he says, Father, if there's any way this cup can be taken from me, not my will but your will be done. And so Peter right here is playing into that humanity of Jesus and telling him what Jesus probably, I'm, you know, I have to be careful here. I don't want to say that Jesus didn't want to suffer and die, but his human nature did not want, you know, none of us want to feel pain. None of us want to suffer. And yet Jesus also wanted to do the Father's will, to suffer and die to, for the sins of the world. And like you said, He's just doing this maybe as a friend, but even as a friend and not realizing he's a pawn of Satan, he's still an ally, an agent of Satan. Uh, but maybe that's what makes him even more dangerous. Well, I think that's very that's very true because, like I said, it's that the good intentions and how sometimes doing something that we think is going to help someone is actually a terrible, terrible uh, stumbling block for them in their lives because we're, we're actually setting them up for temptation. We're not helping them even though we think that we are. Yeah. And you touched on this a little bit before is Peter just before this says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's a confession that was inspired by heaven. But now he says, never Lord. And those are thoughts that are inspired by hell. Now, before Peter was a building block in the foundation of Christ's kingdom. Now he's a snare to stop Christ's kingdom. And this is one of those instances that I I really personally take comfort from all of the heroes of faith that we are given in Scripture. Um, they are not held up as paragons of virtue who live lives completely free from sin. Every single one of them is a sinner, and their numerous sins are laid out for us in the pages of Scripture, and yet they were all saved. They had faith. Abraham fell into sin and didn't always trust God. We see the examples of Peter here. Paul helped persecute the church, and yet he also was saved. That These are the examples. Flawed human beings are held up as the models of our faith, not that we try to live our lives perfectly to earn God's favor, but that we learn to completely trust in the perfection of Christ. And it may seem kind of harsh that Jesus calls Peter Satan, but we need to understand that this temptation that Peter was presenting to the Lord was really no different than the temptation that Satan first presented to Adam in the garden and that the and it's no different than the temptation that Satan presented to the second Adam Jesus in the desert. 
So, and, and with that, uh, you know, why it's a temptation? It's a temptation because Christ could give up his, give up the cross in order to receive the glory. It's a temptation that uh, all of us face. Uh, and that's why Jesus goes on to say to Peter, and this is where I, I imagine, again, Jesus, or Peter takes Jesus away from the rest of the disciples and then rebukes him. And now I imagine Jesus turning with Peter and he faces the other 11 disciples and then he goes on to say, uh, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And that's just a picture of of Christian life that, you know, contrary to some of so many of the messages that are coming out of mainstream Christianity today, that Christianity is a path to success, that if we do these 10 steps to better your marriage or these 10 steps to financial, um, to increase wealth, that's not the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is that as servants of Christ, we are going to suffer. We are going to carry crosses, that it's what's been said by so many. The Bible teaches a theology um, not of glory, but a theology of the cross. And with that, I begin this Sunday sermon on this text uh, where the theme is witness despite persecution. I was going to have a theme like witness uh, while persecution, but then you and I were talking about that. The reason I didn't go with that one is because that means you could also witness by not being persecuted, but or while not carrying your cross. The key is we should always be carrying a cross. As Christians, we're always going to be facing persecution because Jesus said that because he was persecuted, we as his followers are going to be persecuted. Uh, but we don't like the cross. And the example I begin the sermon with on witnessing despite persecution is the example of five Christians. I, and I assume they're Christians just because of that they were praying and singing songs. Uh, and they, were, they had tied, uh, tied themselves up with chains and ropes outside of an abortion clinic in Washington, D.C. And then they were arrested and imprisoned, and now they are facing 11 years in prison and a $350,000 fine for each one of them. And that's happening to them, despite we've seen riots in the streets, we've seen, uh, I have to assume, non-Christians that are firebombing churches and uh, pro-life pregnancy centers, We've seen climate activists chain themselves up to and to stop traffic and so forth, and yet nothing happens to them. So they're not prosecuted at the same time that Christians are being persecuted. That's that's a cross that we have to bear. Uh, I remember a couple weeks ago, um, someone had posted on one of the comments you had made on Facebook that they had said, well, it seems like listening to you, you have a persecution complex. Like you seem to think the world is out to get you. And I read that and said, yes, because that is exactly what the Bible says. Yeah. Jesus says, you will be hated because of my name. Um, and so we see these examples of persecution and we shouldn't be surprised by them. This is the history of God's people. This is one of the marks. Paul says, 
persecution and suffering is one of the marks of an apostle. It's the mark of being a follower of Christ, and it's bearing that cross is what we do as Christians. And if we weren't convinced of our faith, if we didn't believe the words of Scripture, if we didn't know the justness of our cause, we wouldn't suffer these things. Um, It makes me think of that scene at the end of Braveheart where Mel Gibson is being tortured to death and that, I don't remember if he's a bishop or just a, just a, a court official is there and whispering in his ear, all you have to do is confess. Just give up everything you believe and we'll make it all better. And that's the lie of Satan to the Christian life. That's just why, why subject yourself to this pain? Why go through this suffering? Just deny God and everything will be better. And as you had said, that's going back to that lie from the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Did God really say, no, God's hiding stuff from you. Do this and it'll be better. And the way I took it in my sermon to be able to talk about persecution, that's one cross. Another example I had thought of, but it it would not fit with the way that I I wrote the sermon, is I remember years ago visiting one of our shut-ins, and she was feeling very guilty. And she was feeling guilty because uh, she's probably 90 years old at this time, and she's living upstairs in her daughter's house, and she said, Pastor, I just feel so bad, so guilty that my daughter and my son-in-law have to take care of me. And I said, sweetheart, did you raise your daughter to keep the fourth commandment, to honor her father and mother? She said, yeah. I said, well, then they're, they're, it's not uh, suffering that they're doing and taking care of you. They're honoring you and honoring God by taking care of you. But that may be a cross that we as Christians are called to bear, that we take care of our children, we take care of our parents. The way I teach it in catechism class, and I do it this way to see how mature these 7th and 8th graders are, I said, yeah, our parents changed our diapers, and someday we may have to change their diapers. And that's a cross we bear. It's a burden. It's a suffering. But we gladly bear those things because God calls us to do that in our vocation as children or as parents. When I like the example, or not the example, what Jesus says at the end of this section, that like, what does it benefit us to gain the whole world, to have everything and yet forfeit our soul? If you put the two on the scale, pleasure, easiness in this life versus eternity, the eternity has to win out. And that's the hope we have as Christians, that yes, we are going to suffer in this life. But as Paul says, that's not worth comparing to the eternal joy we have with our Savior. So I'm glad you, you brought us to that point uh, toward the end of this lesson. There I wanted to make a reference to the Princess Bride. Uh, so in toward the end of that movie, Inigo Montoya, and if I ever have, uh, you know, if they ask for my name in a restaurant and so forth, I usually put down Inigo and so they know who that is. But Inigo Montoya... He, he corners Count Rugen, who's a six-figure man. He's the one who had killed his father for the sword. Uh, that Inigo knocks the Count's sword aside. He slashes his cheek because Inigo had received two slashes on his cheeks. Uh, and Inigo says to him, offer me money. Count Rugen says, yes. And Inigo says, power too, promise me that. Uh, and then he, he slashes his other cheek. And Count Rugen says, all that I have and more, please. 
Inigo says, offer me anything I ask for. And Count Rugen says, anything you want. And then uh, Inigo says, I want my father back, you son of a blank. And then he, he, he kills him. And, and I use that as an example here because Count Rugen wanted to offer him everything and it wasn't acceptable. And like you were saying and Jesus is saying here is, you know, we would, if we could offer anything to God in exchange of heaven, we would. But God says, that's not enough. You have to offer me more. But that's the mindset of millions and billions of people. They want to offer God anything, their lives, for entrance into heaven, and God won't accept it. Or they believe that they'll get everything um, by what they do. Not just heaven, but rewards in this life as well. Um, and again, that's not not what we're promised. God may bless us in this life, um, but like the goal of our life is not to gain material wealth in this world, success, honor. Basically, everything the world tells us that we should be living our lives for is the opposite of what God tells us to live our lives for. Yeah, he says, in fact, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. After all, what will it benefit a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul, or what can a person give in exchange for his soul? So for us as Christians, uh, Jesus desires for us to offer up our lives, not in exchange of heaven, but in acceptance of heaven. Well, and it's sad, too, when you see some of the prominent figures in our society who are not Christian, and you see the amount of time, money, and effort they put into prolonging their lives, how much energy um, someone like Elon Musk is putting into figuring out if there's a way to transfer human consciousness onto a computer so that someone could live forever. Um, I believe there was a eccentric millionaire or billionaire, and now I may be confusing something that was in a Star Trek episode with reality, but I mean... They're kind of the same. So, um, but I think there was someone who, who had himself frozen near at right after death with the hope that in the future, perhaps there'd be a cure for whatever disease they died from. But the, whether it's true or not, the point is the extreme lengths people will go through to prolong their life on this earth because they have absolutely no hope for anything after this life. Yeah. So I grew up, I grew up in the 80s watching the uh, Saturday morning cartoons and the after-school cartoons. It was a great time to grow up and watching Spider-Man. And there was one of the, uh, the villains, and yeah, he had his head frozen, and then he ended up having that, that uh, head placed onto a, the body uh, of a big robot arachnid, big spider and then that would then go after Spider-Man and so forth. Yeah, those are, but I think also, and all we have to do is Google this, or is uh, I think Ted Williams did that with his head. Yeah, I don't remember. I know there was I, someone and, who... And if not, well, we're just wrong, and uh, the internet will correct us later on. But the key is, uh, we cannot exchange our lives for, for heaven. Uh, because if we play for safety in this life, going back to carrying the cross, uh, we... We're just trying to enhance this life, but we're really just going to end up losing it. Uh, we are happiest not by possessing the most, but, but by being the possession of Christ Jesus.
when you think too of people who put all their hope in possessions and how there's never you can never have enough uh, you read stories about how some of the richest people in the world aren't happy because riches can't fill that void. They can't find enough. Or people who live their lives looking for love and bounce from one partner to another because they can never find fulfillment, because there's nothing there to fill that void that only that only God can fill in our lives. And you just see how people expend all this effort searching for happiness and contentment and never finding it because they don't have the only thing that can give them true happiness and contentment. So so to that, I don't think it's a really bad thing that Hollywood right now is on strike, the writers, the actors, and so forth. But the difficulty is going to be that what you have left are reality TV shows. And some of them are just drivel. They're awful. And with that, you're thinking of... I, I would contend that they're all well, drivel. They're all drivel. But... With, with the ones I'm kind of thinking of that I've never watched, but where you've got these reality shows based on uh, you know, the, the lives of different stars and so forth. And those families, like you're, you're talking about, they're all messed up, whether it was maybe a decade ago, the Ozzy Osbournes and the Hogans and whatever else. Uh, all of those, they are just awful. They, they take our normal lives and then they're ramped up even more so because their, their wealth and possessions are ramped up so much more. So, yeah, don't watch that stuff. Just turn off the TV and uh, get rid of your phone and, and read a good book. Uh, go play outside. Go ride a bike. That's always good advice. Right, Nathan? So I am told. Yes. Uh, so, so lastly, I think as we wrap this up, Something else we can say in applying this to ourselves and our people is that discipleship is not an on-again, off-again affair. It's not something we just do with a burst of enthusiasm and say, ah, now I'm going to church. You know, Now I'm going to get involved in the, the life of the church. Now I'm going to go to Bible study. And then they, they fall off. You know, but so many of our people that we see in our churches do that. And they just come to church once in a while. No, we want you to be committed. But it's not something you do. It's something that the Holy Spirit does through you. And the more you're connected to the Word and sacraments, the more the Holy Spirit works in you to do this. The more you're, you separate yourself from Word and sacraments, the less activity the Holy Spirit has, uh, has time to be working on you. I think it's something important to point out for our people as well, that this idea of taking up our cross doesn't mean that we're miserable all the time. I know there's always been that kind of joke that you can always tell when you walk into a Lutheran church because no one's smiling. Um, But we can rejoice. You look at the book of Acts where it talks about how the disciples started facing actual persecution, like intense persecution, and their response was to praise God. And just how how opposite that is of the world's view of facing suffering, that we can rejoice in our sufferings, that we don't view taking up the cross as a burden, but instead we view it as a joy because we have our focus not on our sufferings, but we have our focus on our Savior. And there I think we can learn a lesson from those who are special needs. 
And, and I think of a text that I received this week, uh, because we're going to be gearing up this end of September for our Jesus Cares worship service at the cross. We took the summer off uh, to, to promote it and really fill up the pews. And we didn't know this, but this young lady named Dana has been watching our worship services online. Young lady, she's 30 years old, and she was texting one of our members and said she's really excited to come to our Jesus Cares service. And unfortunately, her parents aren't interested in the church at all. So even though she lives far south of here, our members are going to work at bringing her here. And as she was uh, saying this in the text, not only is she excited to watch us online, but she's excited to come to that Jesus Cares service. And then she said that her mom asks her, like, what do you want for Christmas? And she said, I keep telling her I want to be baptized. So that's kind of a very cool thing that, Lord willing, uh, Nathan, you or I will get to do. And But it's a lesson for the rest of us is to have that same kind of excitement that Dana has that she can't come to church. Her parents don't bring her to church, but that's what she desires more than anything is to be baptized and be in God's house. And Lord willing, that's the kind of uh, enthusiasm that we have every week. And yeah, and we only get that enthusiasm by trusting in our Savior. That's not enthusiasm that would come to us naturally. It's only by faith that we are able to see these great gifts of God, to understand that bearing a cross is a gift of our Father in heaven. Anything else on the gospel lesson? Uh, no, I don't think so. All right, well, let's get into... The second reading, if you want to read that from Romans 8. Yeah, so the second reading for this week is from Romans eight eighteen through 25. For I concluded that our sufferings at the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. In fact, creation is waiting with eager longing for the sons of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to fertility, not by its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hope that even creation itself will be set free from slavery to corruption in order to share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that all of creation is groaning with birth pains right up to the present time. And not only creation, but also we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Indeed, it was, the, it was for this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for something we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patient endurance. So I think these are important verses for us to read because a lot of times we focus a lot on Romans 8, which is good, but we kind of skip these verses. Uh, we've kind of focused uh, on the ones that come later. So what's Paul getting at here, Nathan? Paul's talking about the concept of suffering, that we're all going to endure suffering. Paul himself, um, oh, now I'm blanking on it again, in Corinthians, one of the two, <laughs> talks about all of the suffering that he endured, boasts in his suffering, and says this so is... it's a humble brag. Yes, it's a humble brag. <laughs> it is funny. That's one of the ones I kind of look at at one point. This is getting off topic, but it is an interesting one. I think it shows verbal inspiration because Paul says, I can't, like, it's something like, I don't believe I'm writing this or I can't believe I'm saying this. And 
I've always thought, well, that's because you're being moved by the Spirit, Paul, to write these things for the future generations of Christians to take comfort from your words. Well, with, with humble brag, I always think of Moses, where he writes about, about Moses, about himself, that he was the most humble man who ever lived. Oh, yeah, that's right. That is, that is one of those, yeah, that he was moved to write that is, yeah. is interesting. But anyhow, what, I interrupted you. What were you saying about Paul in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians? One of those. One, one of the two. <laughs> um, but Paul's talking about this idea of suffering. But not only that we are suffering, but that all of creation is suffering under the burden of sin. That this is not how God intended this world to be. That things are not working the way they're supposed to because of the fallen nature of our world. And that all of creation is looking forward in eager anticipation to the last day when God will make a new heavens and a new earth, will restore creation to its perfection the way it is supposed to be before the fall into sin. And that we as Christians also eagerly look forward and hope to that day when we will be raised from the dead, we will be given new bodies, and we will live with Christ in that eternal joy of that new creation. So with that new creation, let me, let me uh, ask you this, see if we get a, a theological debate here. Is it a brand new creation, or is he recycling an old creation? Now, we went through this in Senior Dog my last semester at the seminary, and I, I will admit my opinion on this changed. Oh, I was definitely a, a God will destroy and make all things new. Um, but there are other portions of Scripture that do seem to indicate that it is more of a restoration. And I always looked at the—now uh, oh, I'm doing it again— when Peter talks about Second Peter yeah, three, Second Peter, that he talks about, I, I have it here. If you want me to read it, the wor- yes, please. Okay, and and here I was thinking uh, that I, since I got a shout out on as a bicyclist on someone else's podcast, I'm going to give a shout out to our Forge and Fire winner because uh, he makes new weapons out of old metal. So Second Peter three, I think it demonstrates that. God is going to make something new out of what's old. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be dissolved as they burn with great heat, and the earth and what was done on it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be destroyed, what kind of people ought you to be, living in holiness and godliness, as you look forward to and hasten the coming of the day of our God? That day will cause the heavens to be set on fire and destroyed, and the elements to melt as they burn with great heat. But according to his promise, we look forward to new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the way I read that is that he's taking everything that's old, burning it up, but then using those elements to make something brand new. Yeah, and I had always understood it, too, as a destruction. But there are other portions of Scripture— that seem to talk about a restoration. Um, And it seems to be talking of like this as a purification process more than a destructive um, process. Um, Again, this is one of those points of doctrine that those of us who are very much theological nerds like debating, um, and we can have disagreements without having to break fellowship. Um, But it is one that, that 
this is an instant where scripture seems to talk two different ways about the same the same event um and again it's something that we don't completely understand how god's process what it's going to be like but what's going to be obvious is that things are not going to be the same as they are now it is going to be a profound change back to the way things are supposed to be free from sin yeah yeah i was just studying in our first catechism lesson with the eighth graders uh, the Garden of Eden and the creation of everything. And someone asked at the end of class, do you think the Garden of Eden is somewhere still in the world and the cherubim with its flaming sword is still guarding it? I said, well, no, I, I don't think so. I think that's a good uh, sci-fi type of episode and so forth. But uh, everything, everything that's going to be made new again at the end will make it look like it was creation, uh, that the perfection of creation. And here Paul talks about the, the, the world is groaning. And I use these verses for my chapel devotion this week with our Wisconsin Lutheran School students. And I told a story about one of our eighth graders who had been playing football two weeks ago. He was running back, and as he was running down the field, a bigger guy came and made a good tackle, but with his tackle, his helmet contacted the running back's ankle and shattered it. Uh, you know, first the trainer went out, and then the coach came out, and then mom said she, that was the fastest she's run in a long time to go out onto the field. They ended up uh, bringing an ambulance onto the field. They canceled that game. They actually canceled the whole tournament. And he had, he was taken to the hospital and then put a cast on. But a few days later, he had to go up to Milwaukee to Children's Hospital to have uh, all of his bones put back together and screws and plates and so forth. And so we talked in the devotion about this young man groaning, groaning on the field, groaning because he's wearing a cast, groaning because he's missing all of the football season and probably a good portion, if not all, of the basketball season. And then I talked about uh, a 17-year-old that you know, his family didn't like him and they got rid of him. And then he ended up working for a family as a caretaker. But there he was falsely accused and thrown in jail. And I asked the students, well, who was that? And they said, well, that's Joseph. So yeah, he was groaning probably in the pit that his brothers threw him into. He was groaning as he's... Uh, tied up by the Ishmaelites, the slave traders taken to Egypt. He's groaning in Potiphar's house until he establishes himself. He's groaning when he's falsely accused and thrown in jail. He's groaning when he's forgotten in jail. But the beautiful thing is the groaning ends. Uh, and the groaning ends for all of us. Now, we may all groan here on earth. It may be the plants and the trees, the animals, our pets. It may be the weather and... Uh, whether it's you know the rain and hurricanes or fires and so forth, our world is groaning. But because Jesus Christ groaned on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He turns our groaning into praising. And that's just the joy we have to look forward to, which is what Paul kind of gets to in the end with that idea of hope, that hope is that sense of anticipation, um, but anticipation almost with, I want to say anticipation with certainty, because we know what the outcome of our faith is, that joy of heaven. 
we hope for it because we don't we don't have it um, and so we we wait we wait with patient endurance we wait as we bear our crosses through this world we wait as we endure the suffering and we wait patiently knowing that God is in control that God is working these things for our good and we wait knowing that we may not understand his plan he may not show us why these things happen to us, but we know that he is there, that he is in control, that he is working all things out for our good. And we're hoping for something that we know is already ours. Uh, we know that it's something that's a an inheritance for us. And this is something I, I've told my dad a, n- a number of times. I'm the oldest of three kids, and I have two younger sisters. And in the past, when my mom and dad were working on their will, and I'm the executor of their will, I was trying to talk them into giving me 50% and then splitting up the remaining 50% with my two younger sisters because I said, uh, you know, I'm the eldest and so I should get the, the larger portion of it. And I actually got my dad to think about that for a while. And, and then after a few, a few minutes, he said, I don't think your sisters will like that too much. I said, Dad, I'm just teasing. But I know that there's an inheritance that's coming uh, and all of us have an inheritance that's coming. God's inheritance that's coming is a whole lot better than the inheritance my parents are leaving me or that I'm leaving for my kids. This conversation just coincidentally came up in our household this week um, because my daughter, uh, who is my firstborn, was asking why her brother got the larger room downstairs with the television and the refrigerator and his own bathroom. And I said, well, he's the firstborn son, so he gets the double portion. Yeah, see? that's what's, yeah. And did she buy it too? No, she yeah. was not satisfied with that answer. I see. I don't know. You and I are doing something very scriptural with, my, with me, with my parents, you, with your children. I don't know why they're not getting it. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Yeah, but we wait with patient endurance. And it, that's a good reminder for us when we are struggling with whatever kind of struggles it is, whether it's health struggles like this eighth grader, whether it is family drama like it was with Joseph, whatever our issues are, we know that there's going to be an end. And we also know that even if it, well, we know there's going to be an end, but even while we're here on earth, those things may not end. And we pray for this young man that uh, he's back and playing sports very soon, but he may not. But uh, he deals with patient endurance to go to heaven, and that's when he's going to be running and jumping around God's throne in heaven. Uh, and for all of us, too, you know, I wait. I, I told Nathan the other day, I said, I thank God every day that God gave me you. Uh, I just had to wait a really long time. And I remember writing a sermon probably about two years ago, so about half only a half year into the vacancy of me covering, you know, two campuses for this one church. And I said, well, God will give us the right man at the right place at the right time. And that was preached for our people, but it was more preached for myself. I needed to remember that. And I didn't realize I had to, to wait two and a half years for it. But God works everything out. Well, thank you, Michael. Yeah. Um, one of the things. Well, it's it's oh, kind of funny. Even though I'm colorblind, he's blushing. Yes, a little bit. It's true. Um, sorry, something I thought of reading this section is um, 
in verse 20 where Paul says that creation was uh, subjected to futility. It makes me think, um, Pastor Zarling and I, for those of you who are not aware, are both science fiction nerds. Um, we have different tastes in the genre. Um, yeah. uh, yours are okay, mine are much better. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, you, that's your opinion. But yeah. but I mean, as we were, just before we started recording, I asked if you had seen like Ahsoka and so forth, but you're not even finished with the Clone Wars. Well, I went all the way back to the beginning so I can fully appreciate it. Um, what I was going to say, though, is you, you, in the science fiction genre, I'm thinking specifically of Star Trek, you have this idea of eventually the world will reach a point where we'll be united under one world government, where we'll get rid of sickness, where people will live to two or three hundred years old, that this is the direction. Things are just going to keep getting better and better and better. And the Christian worldview is no. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse until the end, when then the things will not only be better, they will be made perfect. But that all of creation is subject to futility. So basically what you're saying is that uh, Star Trek is utopian and Star Wars is more realistic with our Christian worldview as far as you know their, their galaxies and so forth are pretty crummy just like our world is. I mean, we could go off on a whole tangent here because I'm a huge fan of Deep Space Nine and that really deals with the idea that a utopian society can't exist, that ultimately you're going to fall back into war and distrust. So I think even there's some people that realize that you're never going to achieve that utopia status, that people are still people, and that there is always going to be sin, there's always going to be corruption, and that there's always going to be people who are evil and who will not live for the greater good. And... I think we're wrapping it up here, too. Just looking at verse 23, uh, what what Paul is doing here, and we talked about this a little bit last time with what Paul was writing in Romans, is he's using uh, the personification. He's personifying creation, you know, giving it human emotions and things that happen to humans like giving childbirth and so forth. But he says in verse 23, and not only creation— as it's groaning with pains of childbirth. But we ourselves, we are also groaning with the pains of childbirth, who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we eagerly await our adoption of sons, the redemption of our body, uh, the first fruits of the Spirit, uh, that we planted uh, vegetables in our garden and have got a lot of peppers and onions and so forth. My wife and I are going to be canning some things. We've made some salsa ready, some pip- pickled peppers. Uh, we're going to be canning apples, making applesauce, apple juice and so forth this weekend. All of those, you pick the the peppers and the and the tomatoes as a first fruits, knowing you're going to get more. Same with cucumbers and snap peas and so forth. Paul saying, that we are the first first fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience. We have these first fruits, and we are groaning inwardly, but we're just awaiting the adoption as sons. We have that adoption through baptism to be called the sons and daughters of the heavenly Father, brothers and sisters of the very Son of God. But we won't have the redemption of the body until we are united in heaven on the last day. 
that our spirits will go to be around God's throne and then we have to wait for that last day when the earth is burned up and made new. When that happens, we will be made new as our old bodies will be made new to reunite with our soul, our spirit around God's throne. And I think we all as Christians echo Paul's words that he had towards the end of his life, which is, I desire to depart, which will be better by far. Um, But we also understand that, like Paul, we sometimes need to remain in this world to serve our brothers and sisters in love, even though we are looking forward in anticipation to that day when we will be free um, from all weeping, crying, and pain. Uh, And that reminds me, I... uh, I was meeting with someone. I had a hospital visit this morning, and I and which I which is which is why I know this is a podcast. You can't see us. I'm in shorts and a soccer jersey, and Nathan's all dressed up in his clerical collar. This the two different forms of the ministers in the ministry here at Water of Life. Yes, um, and I do have to say, I I am really. This is the first time I've professionally worn my collar, and I am I'm enjoying it quite a bit. So yeah, explain why the clerical collar was important for you at the hospital today. So so that maybe most of our listeners don't see their pastors wearing a clerical collar, but I wear one too when I go to the hospital or to the prison or when I'm doing funerals at the funeral home or, or here too so that they know that I am the pastor as opposed to just wearing a, a shirt and tie and maybe a suit coat going to those places. So unlike when I went to a hospital visit, my vicar year wearing a shirt and tie and wandered around freighter for two and a half hours without anyone offering to guide me, even though I was obviously lost. Wearing the collar today, they were all friendly and helpful. I got directed right where I needed to go. I was given extra information that I needed. It was... And you were probably called father a few times? Uh, no, pastor. Oh, okay. Was it? So I was a little little surprised about that. But anyways, what I was, what I said to the visitor or the person I was visiting this morning, I was reminded of uh, the chapel I gave uh, for some last year, um, going to Isaiah's description of what heaven is like. And what struck me as I was reading that section is Isaiah seems to be struggling for words to describe what heaven is and can only describe it as what it is not. And the example I used is how do you describe the joy and fear you have as a parent the first time your daughter gets her driver's license and drives out pulls out of the driveway on her own how do you describe that to someone or for example how do i describe the color of my associate shirt to someone who is colorblind that we don't have that frame of reference and that's what isaiah we don't have a frame of reference for heaven so we describe it why it's not it isn't pain it isn't suffering. It isn't sadness. It is joy. And that's what we look forward to. So just wrapping it up then with these two lessons we looked at is with joy, we carry our crosses with patient endurance. There's a good sermon theme one day. Not, not for this Sunday, but for someone. So this is Pastor Michael Zarling and Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer from Water of Life. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.